so the summer before my eighth grade year, which would have been 1991, my band director uh, took a group of students to a drum corps international show. And one of the groups that was performing was doing the music of the Pat Metheny group. And I'd never heard of that band at the time. And on the way to the event, my band director played some of their music so we could know what we were in store for. It was the first time I ever heard the album Still Life Talking, and it just stopped me in my tracks, specifically the drumming on it. And that experience just led me down a path of listening to this guy that I'm getting to speak with today in whatever configuration he was playing in. And to me, I think he's probably one of the most diverse drummers that's ever sat behind a drum kit. He's a seven-time Grammy Award winner with the Pat Metheny Group, and he's played with everyone from Larry Coryell to Kurt Elling, Howard Levy, and his own projects uh, like the Paul Wertico Trio. And he's also a very well-respected educator and clinician, uh, served on the faculty at Northwestern, and is now at Roosevelt University in Chicago. As I was looking through his list of former students, it's a pretty impressive list, including my son's professor, uh, at LSU, Dr. Brett Dietz. So uh, it's an honor to welcome Paul Wertico to the podcast. Hey, Paul, how are you? Good, Brad. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for being here today, man. I, it's a real honor to uh, sit and have a conversation with you. I heard in an interview uh, with you that your mom encouraged you to take up an instrument and but said, don't play the drums. Yeah. That's really funny to me. Did, at some point, did she come around to that? Well, it was just one of those things where, you know, we moved uh, to Cary, Illinois, you know, and just about to enter the sixth grade. And, you know, I always played on the desk and stuff listening to AM radio. So I always loved the drums for, for whatever reason. And when we moved to Cary... I wasn't in any band, and so she wanted me to join the school band and take up an instrument, just which was great. And I wanted to take up the drums, and that's what I ended up doing. Same thing happened for me. I was, I was about the same age and started playing. Um, and when my son started playing percussion, I actually picked up the phone and called my mom and said, I want to just apologize for all of the hell that I probably put you through as a child, banging on things around the house. What was it about the drums that pulled you in? I have no idea. I really don't. Like so much things in life, you just follow your muse and you have no idea why you are what you are. You find out certain things later on about that there might have been an attraction to this or that or the kind of food you like or the... But in general... I, get, I was always into, into trains, so the rhythm of the train, the direction, but this was all happening, say the Beatles had come out, say the mid to late 60s, and I'm talking about like 1966, moving to Cary around that time. So it wasn't that I was in love with Ringo or, or the drums or anything, but there was just something about maybe the physicality of it. The movement, I, I was always pretty physical. I was always been coordinated and things. And But it just in general, I guess if you don't play an instrument and you're listening to AM radio at your desk doing your homework, if you don't play an instrument, you can't just break out a trumpet or you can't just break out a right. clarinet. Or right. <laughs> so basically, you have pencils that you can start bouncing on the table. And then you might get inspired, which I always did. You know, you get some cans or some canisters. And the next thing you know, you're kind of playing faux drum sets. So I guess it was just a natural thing that luckily worked out. Did you start because I and I will say and you probably heard this a lot over the years, but you have some of the most beautiful 
and just flowing technique of of anyone, man. It's a pleasure to watch you play because you just you seem so relaxed uh, when you play. Did you did you gravitate towards traditional grip from the beginning? Was it a, were you a matched grip player? What was the evolution of that? That's a great question. Thank you for the compliment. So when I did join the the grade school band, my band director Vern Pade uh, was a saxophone player. So he as a grade school band director you have to know all the instruments so he showed me the drumsticks and back then everybody was playing traditional because that's just the way it was and it's funny because when once i got into like seventh and eighth grade i remember being in the choir room one time and everyone was laughing at ringo because he was playing matched grip but a lot of the british drummers did play match grip Mm -hmm. so i actually played both evenly but What's really funny about this is that I remember, okay, so I take these lessons, I get a drumstick and I get a pad and I start learning music. And I remember to the day when all of a sudden I just could do a roll. I was just sitting there and all of a sudden the mechanics just sort of happened. Now, what I practiced on when I got home was just pillows. So everything, so I didn't have a drum instructor. And in fact, later on, when I finally got a drum set as a graduation present from eighth grade, I asked my mom if I could take drum lessons. And she said, no, just do what you're doing. So my technique was all just self-taught. And it just came from just playing the pillows. And again, I guess the logic of your body, if you're able to read it, just makes sense. And you do what comes naturally. One reason I have this great technique in the finger control is just because there was no bounce on the pillow. So I had to do it using my hands and my fingers. And the other thing I told, I just told Don Lombardi this when we did one of those uh, Lombardi live interviews, that when I finally got a snare drum, I got a Slingerlin snare drum. This is before I got a drum set. And so I started practicing that. This would have been in seventh grade. But I didn't have a drum set yet, but I, I would play along with records. The strainer on the snare drum would be one of those things where you just it kind of went like this, and it had a little flap that you, you would catch. So I actually went to my closet and got a metal coat hanger and fashioned it so it went around the snare strainer and around my left knee. So I was able to go like that just by moving my knee this way. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, you know, one thing even my my daughter, my wife always say, I, I've always been inventive. I like making up stuff, creating stuff. I love to cook without recipes. I love to play music that's spontaneous. It's just one of the things I guess I've always felt comfortable with um, just going into unknown territory and enjoying the adventure. You know, I had a drum teacher. I started taking private lessons in, I think, around eighth grade. Same kind of idea where his assignment to me was to play on my leg above my knee same concept of playing with the pillow in that there's no natural rebound from it, which really developed my back three fingers, which once you translate it over to a snare drum, it just makes everything so much easier. That's a little more painful, obviously. It hurts pretty, a lot of yeah. times. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why they even have practice pads now you can put on your knee, you know, on your right. leg to be able to do it. Yeah. But no, that's it also helps with brush technique because you know, brushes you can't you can kind of get a bounce, but not really. So to get that even stroke on on a bounce you're actually helping it with your finger control. Yeah. I mean, if you weren't taking lessons, I imagine, were you playing through any, from any method books at that point? Were you just playing what was at school? 
Well, I've always been sort of a collector of things. So I would buy certain books. Back then, you know, you had the Haskell Horror book. You know, you might have had Stick Control and, and things like that. And when I used books, I never would go through the book. I would look at like a page, maybe look at an exercise or two, and then just make up variations on that. So I was never one of those people that, you know, has to go through all the exercises on every page of the book and then feel like I conquered the book. I always kind of, again, I like adventure. So I would just take something and go, okay, that's a cool pattern or a cool rhythm or a cool sticking. What can I do with that? And then just kind of run with it. What were you listening to at this time? Well, I did have a large record collection because when I was 15, now I couldn't even drive yet. I was teaching at three music stores. My dad would drive me to these music stores. God knows what I was teaching. But (laughs) but one of the music stores in particular was in McHenry, Illinois. And it was a large record store, too. So you walk in, and there's all these new records, which I would buy. So I spent my money teaching on the (laughs) record stores. So that's where I first got, you know, Coliseum, or you'd get all kind of the rock records. You know, you'd get the nice, or you'd get these, these, who is this, you know, and you would just buy it and, and bring it home. And then I would play all the time. And back then, even though I had like a Victrola kind of thing for my records, I did play with AM radio a lot. So finally, when I got a drum set as a graduation present, I set it up and I had like an AM radio behind me. So there's no headphones or anything. Mm. And then I would just put on whatever was playing, the Kinks, the Hollies, the Beatles. And then I would just jam along with it. But rather than try to play what the drummer played, I would play around the music i would play almost free and then catch things and then and then so i never transcribed things back then i was never really interested in trying to sound like someone else it was just more my dance because when i play i think it's like dancing even though i'm not a dancer dancer it's a dance and so i would just react to what the music made me feel when i played and that that kind of gave me that sense of flow and, and of natural movement and a forward motion rather than being like a drummer playing a rudiment for their fill. And in fact, I hated the rudiments at first because not not that I couldn't play them. I just thought like, what is this stuff? And then it wasn't until, you know, a few years later that I all of a sudden went, oh, wow, this rudiment, oh, that's when you break it up around the drums, that's a Art Blakey lick or Ginger Baker lick or what all that. And even in Cary, there was a uh, A&P grocery store that – I would go to that would just carry records. And so that's when, the, you know, I'd go and go, freak out, Frank Zappa, never heard of him, buy it. Are you experienced? Jimi Hendrix, I don't know, buy it. Cream, cream especially. All of a sudden there's fresh cream and I look on the back and it goes, Ginger Baker, undoubtedly European's best drummer, took it. <laughs> so I just bought everything and and jazz records too, the same, So and, and ethnic records. I just bought whatever I could. And I would just listen and practice all the time. So you're right about, you know, bugging your parents. But we lived in a home, luckily, because, you know, if I lived in an apartment or something like that, it would drove neighbors crazy for sure. But it was one of those things where it was all natural, you know, not trying to copy anybody, just letting the music tell me what to play, which I still to this day tell my students, let the music play you, because then it's more of a natural thing. And if you do have technique then you're able to express yourself. Just like if you have a vocabulary, depending on 
how big your vocabulary is, you can speak to a child, you can speak to a, another professor. And the whole idea is to use the correct words to whoever you're talking to. But if you don't know those words, or if you don't know the meaning of those words, then you're going to sound like sort of an idiot. So the idea <laughs> is to really work up your techniques so that you can express yourself for what you're feeling and hearing and and thinking about and then just do it naturally so it's just like talking you know i feel like i'm a sum of every record that i've ever listened to you know and pulling a little bit and, and again like you're saying not trying to copy them but just trying to understand the flavor of what they're doing and then ad adapt it to you know to who i am I've noticed that behind the kit, it does, you know, visually seem like you're you're dancing, and that it's not a it's not a, a an elbow down motion or even a shoulder down motion. It's it's everything is is mobile while you're playing. Yeah, and some you know some people might frown on that because you know I, I you know some people say economy of motion to save energy, but for me that's more liberating because I'm not tiring. I mean. You see, you can see me play like a three-hour set. I don't sweat one bead. It's I'm not out of breath. It's totally effortless for me. And I like the motion of that because that's what I'm feeling. I'm feeling this. I'm not just feeling a note like this. It's I was, you know, just teaching some drummers about reading. And, you know, when we look at drum music, whether it's a, a whole note or a half note, or a chord note, or an eighth note, or the sixteenth, it's just one note. It's going to gink. Well, no, if you're playing another instrument, it's going to be a longer note. So why not make longer notes, even if even if it's still a dink hitting a snare drum, why don't you make it feel like it's a longer note, if that's what, you, if that's what you're hearing? Because you're hearing phrasing, you know? Otherwise, I'd be talking all like this, and every note would be very short, unless I went like this, and then with a similar, and just decay when I did. You know, it'd be in stupid. So the idea you're talking through the instrument, and again, I'm 71. I'm in the best shape. You know, I go and do 100 push-ups in the morning and all this stuff. It's effortless for me. And the drumming has kept me healthy. And I think if I played like this, you know, people get tendonitis from repetitive motion. So the way I play, there is no repetitive motion. It's always a different thing. It's always just something is relieving the other, other tendons and fingers as I'm doing this other strike. Yeah, the, the the moment that the, the the stick touches the drum is only one part of the entire motion instead of that being the result of everything else. Yeah. Right. Now, one thing you do have to be careful, and I guess this is something I am proud of, is say with Mathena, I had all those symbols. You know, so there was a lot of distance to cover. And also, it was almost all with sequencer, so you have to be perfectly in time. So some people will say, okay, the reason you want to keep your distances shorter is because if you have more space, there's more opportunity to like drush or drag. Because So really what you have to be able to do is judge different distances, but still at the point where it's still synchronized where you want it to hit. And But I've never thought about that because to me that's just, luckily it's worked out. So I can play with a click or anything in my sleep and always hit and not worry that if I come this far or if I come all the way this far, that I'm going to be off a little bit. Yeah. Were you guys using wedges during all of that? or were well, you? Um, okay. Until, until actually, until the imaginary day tour, yes. 
So I had this gigantic wedge, you know, by my hi-hat that was, you know, had to be louder than Pat, and Pat was really loud. And, you know, finally I put in earplugs, you know, in my left ear. But then, finally, I I got some in-ears. And I'll tell you a funny story. A lot of people don't know this, but I can tell it. So uh, I got some in-ears. And so we were just about to go on the imaginary day tour, and we were uh, rehearsing in Atlantic City. So I got this new drum set from DW's gorgeous kit, and I got this in ears. So Pat's like, "Okay, let's let's play." Have you heard? So I play "Have You Heard" and just nail it. Like, and he goes, he goes, "Yeah, it sounds great." You know, I'm just afraid that um, you know that that you might feel outside the music. Let's do it without the in ears for a second. Now I know I could do the same thing, but I went okay, and I. Fairly rarely ever do stuff like this. But I said, I'm just going to play like maybe 10% less accurate. So then by the time he was done, he goes, yeah, you're right. Okay, you sound better with the in-ears. And I was able to keep the in-ears because if I had played the same way, I wouldn't have been able to do that. Right. But dig this. He was so used to this blasting monitor by me, he kept that going. So I had in-ears, but I still had this god-awful oh, no. mechanic monitor blasting the left side, <laughs> which made it really hard, you know, for, for like, the sound men to make me loud enough because you got this thing blasting through, which was crazy. That's so funny. I saw you with the band one time, uh, and it was on that tour. I was in college at the time and, and drove up from Nashville to Louisville, Kentucky to see you guys up there, and, man, you sounded so good. Thanks. <laughs> well, that, that other thing that we added on that... Um, I think Steve Rodby recommended this was one of these bass vibrators magnets under under your drum throne so that you, when you hit the bass drum or you hear the bass you could feel it and and Lyle liked it so much he actually had it put on his piano throne. really but but what's really funny you know luckily I beat this but in 2017 I, I had prostate cancer and I beat that you know and I'm thinking I wonder having a, like this 10 pound magnet next to your <laughs> under your groin for a whole year that can't be healthy it for can, your for your body you know it can't be I, I didn't even think about that but you're right yeah that's that's a that's a good point that's really funny how did you meet Steve? Rod, because I know you're both from from Chicago. Is that right? I was playing yeah, on the scene, and he was on the scene. We were we ended up playing with this guy Ross Trout, who was this guitar player that was, I think he might have even been Pat's roommate for down in University of Miami for a bit. But I started playing with Ross, and then I think Ross knew Steve, and and you know then we started playing in the same bands, and we got along really well, and then. Um, remember Steve and I, we did Simon and Bard's first two records and just one thing kind of led to another. We always just played great together. We're, we're kind of different people. I mean, he's very, how can I put it? Well, for instance, like when he, uh, this is, I don't know if he's still doing this because we're actually still playing together. We're in a band with this great piano player, Niels Landoki from Denmark. In fact, we have a couple gigs with Mike Stern coming up in Denmark. In, oh, cool. Uh, the end of August, early September. But Steve would be one of these guys that, like, he would have, like, a great pen, you know, his penmanship. And I'm like, I don't care what I'm, I'm just like that. So we were, and so it's almost like he was the straight man 
And we've even talked about this, even in an interview once. He's almost like the straight man, and I'm the crazy guy, you know? So he keeps <laughs> me in line. We have fun together. So that's that's how that worked. I, I don't think he was on the video, but I saw a video with you with Simon and Bard from the early 80s. It's, a, it's in a recording studio. Oh, is that and, the thing? Is that the thing with, uh, what's her name? Uh, John <laughs> Schultz's daughter. Mackenzie Phillips. Mackenzie Phillips, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. Larry Gray, actually, on bass, who I'm, we're to Cocaine Gray. We have eight recordings together. Yeah. So Larry and I do a lot of things. And we just recorded with Fareed Hawk a couple days, uh, two 10-hour sessions uh, about two months ago. And he's incredible. Now, he's yeah. he's different than Steve. I mean, they're both incredible. Uh, Larry's like a virtuoso cellist, guitarist, flautist, pianist, you know, um, He's kind of, and he's got tons of chops. I mean, he's just like, so when when we play together, it, it's it's a different thing, you know, because different people bring out different sides of you, and that's what's cool about it, you know. If right. If brought the same way, then it would get boring. So that's why you play with different people. Sure. And as long as you're happy with how you feel playing with different people, it's always interesting that way. But both of them are like dear friends, you know, for since the seventies. That's know? fantastic. Yeah. You know, so I started out playing drums and percussion, but became a gigging bass player because I was a, I'm a singer as well. And I found I could get a lot of work as a singing bass player. Uh, uh-huh. So that's what I did. But uh, I was curious as a drummer and bass player, what do you look for? for? What do you want from a bass player on the bandstand? What kind of things do you look for? Well, obviously, that's your partner. So you're the foundation. And especially they're the foundation because they're playing the lowest instrument. That's why a bass drum is a bass drum. Sometimes, you know, when people say kick drum, well, it is for pop music, but it's really a bass drum. So it's the foundation up on the drum set. But what I look for... Um, obviously, good time and feel. Because some people play in front of the beat, some play in back, some play in the middle. So I can adjust to that, and they can adjust to me. And it's just it depends on the music. Because I've been lucky enough to play with the greatest bass players in the world, and each of them kind of brings out different things in you. So, you know, some people, if they're really precise, they might. And the music needs precision. It's almost easier to play precise with them as opposed to trying to play music that's got to be precise, but someone that's looser. Because then you might play loose, and then it might be a little too loose, you know. Right. Um, so, and just the fact that you know, if they play more notes, then I'm going to play maybe less notes because you know, in a sonic landscape there's only a hundred percent that can be filled like if you think of a painting or something a a blank canvas there's only a hundred percent that can be filled so different times people share the the amount of canvas that they're filling in Mm -hmm. so sometimes you know if i'm playing just like straight ahead like you know the million dollar beat i like a bass player just playing a million dollar groove with (laughs) me and we'll just lock in and then let everyone else fill in all the space and and intonation obviously too makes a big difference because all these people i'm talking about i'll I'll play great time and, and they play in tune obviously but i've you know over the years i mean i started out when i started playing um in high school actually i started going downtown to sit in with barrett deems's group now barrett deems was this guy 
he was like part of the Gene Krupa Buddy Rich school. So he played with Louis Armstrong, you know, he went to Africa with Louis Armstrong and he's in all the, I mean, he played with everybody and he was incredibly fast. I mean, he was unbelievably fast. And so he, I sat in one time and he loved my playing. So he was kind of like, even I never took a lesson, he was kind of like a mentor. So I started subbing for him even before college. So I started playing with all these older black bass players who were like seven years old that played with Louis Armstrong and Ellington. Wow. So again, it's like that song, I wish I knew what I know now when I was <laughs> right. younger. But I was playing, I you know, I was just playing with these guys and, tr- and a lot of those guys felt to me like they were almost dragging. But when I was younger, I was probably pushing mm-hmm. the beat, you know? Yeah. Now you would marry this stuff. But um, it's just, it was real interesting. And Barrett was, I mean, he's so famous that... There's a story that I think it was Gene Krupa said that Barrett makes coffee nervous. <laughs> and there, there's these stories, him on a plane with like maybe 10 watches on each arm. I mean, just, and so when he died, right before he died, he was in his 80s, he was married to this girl, Jane, who was an alto sax player. She was like 40 years younger. And when he died, she asked me to take over the big band, but I was with Pat. I, I couldn't do it. But again, I was lucky enough that. I don't come from that, um, I don't know, I guess the educational thing where uh, you learn jazz only in school. That's one one thing good about Chicago is you can go to school here and then go jam at night you know, at the clubs. But I, I definitely came a lot from playing, you know, all those gigs live all those times with so many different pa- people. And by the time I met Ross Trout and Rodby and all these people, I was already playing all these nights everywhere. And every everything was a different experience. You know, you'd have a you'd have a, a recording session or a jingle, and then you'd play a hotel lounge, and then you'd play a wedding, and then you'd play some jazz club, and then you'd play some rock club. I mean, it was so fun back then. And I always made my style that I would play things that sort of crossed over into something else. I played with this guy, Joe Daly, who's a great sax player um, and great educator when I was in my 20s. And in fact, when Pat first asked me to join and play with him in the 70s, I turned Pat down um, because I had been, had been with, with uh, Joe Daly for two years and we had this big gig coming up, the Jazz Showcase, which back then was like, you know, it's like the Village Vanguard. So I was playing with Joe one time and I had this band earwax control and I would always do this crazy stuff. Like I would take, I had this cassette deck and I would uh, record stuff off a television. Like I'd record Bella Lugosi and all this stuff. And then I'd I'd split the words up cutting the tape to have it introduce earwax control. So anyway, this one night with Joe Daly and Howard Levy was, was in the audience and stuff. We're playing orphans on a Monday night, which we had this normal Monday night thing. And we're playing sort of modern, but, you know, sort of straight ahead jazz. I had taped a, a, a toilet paper commercial. And so I had my 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 uh, cassette deck next to me, and I didn't plan on doing this. But anyway, we started trading fours. And Joe plays this four, and then I play four, and then he hits, does another four. And then I decided to hit the the um, the cassette deck, and the commercial came on. It went ba-da-ba-ba-da-ba-do-da-da-da. Uh-oh. And the whole audience completely lost it. Because how many people would do that on a jazz gig? Oh, that's great. Yeah. So, again, I, I guess I got my reputation for not being normal. <laughs> yeah. 
as I was saying before, growing up listening to you playing with Pat, my favorite record of yours playing on with that group was the quartet record. I thought it showed a different aside to you in that group that I kind of thought was missing. And it just kind of was like, oh, that's the guy for me. That's it. I, you sound so great on that. Thanks. Well, you know, that we did in a couple days and... One reason you can hear me is because there's no sequencers going. Because yeah, right. I was buried in sequencers, which always so I, even even when I listen to those records now, I'm like, God, I can't even, I couldn't even transcribe what I was playing if I had to because I can't hear half the stuff. Yeah, no. And I was just explaining. I was talking to Ed Tof, you know, Ed Tof. Mm-hmm. From, yeah. So we're friends. Actually, he took a lesson many years ago, but we're friends. And I, I was just explaining to him about that record that I actually had a drum solo on that record okay it was about you know maybe a minute and a half or two minutes long but what happened is that i was with um with evan's heads at the time and evan's heads were great but they had a problem working with dw bass drum bearing edges so here i'm going to play my play a solo which was going to be a cool solo and i play it and we go back and listen to it. And I remember this happening as I was playing it. As I was playing it, the head slid off the bearing edge. So you hear the bass drum go boom, 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 blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and the other guys in the band didn't really hear it, but I pointed it out and then they were go, okay, we can't use it. So that broke my heart, you know? Oh, yeah. And there was also on First Circle, I was supposed to have a drum solo. Because remember, I did scrap metal with mm-hmm. the ring modulator on stuff. Yeah. We act- I actually have a tape of that, too. And that was going to be, but Pat didn't put it on for some reason. That was, we did that, and I did all my feedback and everything live. But that never made it on either. So, I mean, Pat's gig was great in so many ways. But it was also very, you know, it was kind of restricting. Because you do, you know, you knew... It's always going to be this many courses of guitar on this song. And, you know, you couldn't just stretch. I just could, I couldn't go and just like do a retard somewhere, you know, that you would normally do if you're playing regular music. So it's, it's funny because I'm so proud that I could do that kind of music and, and that people loved it. But it's really, I feel like it's about like, you know, half of what, or less than half of who I am and what I do. But that's the thing about when you play different music, different types of music only requires so much so you could have the most amazing chops but if you're playing with the rolling stones that's your job it's just to lock down the groove and if the music's good you're happy doing it because then you're serving the music and you're making it work and i think when i mentioned earlier that i was doing so many gigs in chicago that was so fun for me so if i played a wedding i was never bored on a wedding because i knew later on that night or tomorrow i could i could do my bash with you know and so my job on a wedding okay let me get that dance floor packed and keep it packed you know so i think a big thing with understanding our role as drummers and musicians in general is to, is what does the music really require how much of you even though you're putting in a hundred percent you're putting in maybe a hundred percent of maybe ten percent here a hundred percent of eighty percent Sometimes 100% of 100%, like with Word of Cain and Gray, that's that's totally improvised. That's 100% of 100%. But it it's really keeps life interesting because it's never the same ever. I, I tell everyone that I came to you through the, the group, but I stayed for everything else because okay. you're, you're playing – I think it's – 
and I don't want to get too opinionated about it, but I feel it's a travesty <laughs> that most of the people don't know you as the guy who played all this other stuff. Because man, you're just such a deep, deep player, and I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was a tough thing working after that group because you were probably kind of typecast. I guess is the best word for it. You know. Well, I, I even I've talked about this with other people where. It's like an actor, you know, you think of Fred Gwynn from The Monsters <laughs> and, you know, he, he's in uh, he's in other things where, he, where, you know, he was in Car 54 before that, but you always think of like what they're most famous at, right? But, I, you know, in, in reality, you look at the world, we're so lucky to have anything, any recognition at all. So it's to be in a band that, that sells that many records and, and I guess has that much positive meaning for so many people, that's a blessing in a lot of ways sure. that we actually did something. Because think of how many people out there have tons of chops or, you know, have tons of talent that never get heard at all. So it's really hard to complain about anything, really, especially like our lives, like say you and I, where there's people starving to death right now, or it's just, you know, there's so many things that... that we we've won the lottery in so many ways, and so yeah, it's frustrating in some ways to think that people don't know that other side of me. But you know, maybe they will, and if they don't, it was not meant to be. So yeah, well, to anyone listening to this, please go check out more stuff. <laughs> it's so good. I want to talk to you about your teaching career because I, I find it really interesting that you didn't take formal lessons growing up, but you've you've amass this really long teaching career. And I think it's really, uh, it's just, I think it's a testament to you. I think you're maybe a lifelong learner uh, of and, and then transferring that information on to other people. What was the catalyst for you becoming a, a, a teacher? At a university, for At instance? At a university, for example, yeah. Yeah, totally accidental. So, I had been teaching privately for, you know, a long time. And like I said, I was teaching at music stores when I was 15. But um, one time, you know, because of, again, playing with Pat, so that would be one of the benefits, um, I got asked to do a clinic at um, University of Wisconsin in Appleton. And so it was one of those kind of uh, days of percussion. I don't know if it was a basic thing or not. But anyway, so I'm, I did my thing. And then two of the other uh, people that were clinicians were Patsy Dash and Jim Ross from Chicago Symphony Orchestra, yeah. and they were also teaching at Northwestern. So they go, Paul, we you know we love what you're doing. You should you should come and teach at at you know at Northwestern. And I went, well, I'm touring a lot. And they said, no, no, you know, you just you could just be you know adjunct or whatever. I, I sure. So all of a sudden, I I got that gig. You know, and then I'm doing that, you know, it's going, you know, 10, 12, 13. All of a sudden, then I'm doing a PAS, Illinois PAS thing at Roosevelt University. And Ed Harrison, who was is still, still teaching there, he was also doing a clinic there. So he goes, Paul, you should do teach here. And I was like, okay, you know, so there I'm adjunct at both schools for a while, which you can do. And so... At one point, I think after maybe two years or maybe, yeah, just a couple years, I went just went up to the dean at uh, Chicago College of Performing Arts at Roosevelt University, and I just said to him, I said, you know, hey, if you're ever interested in me doing more, you know, 
not thinking about that. What's you know? But just maybe more. She goes, well, what about full time position? And I was like, <laughs> okay, okay, <laughs> you know. So about a year later, all of a sudden, I met with the the dean of the the school and everything, and they offered me this position, and. You know, I said, well, can it be tenure track? Because sometimes people, you know, you can teach there at a school for 30 years, but you always got to be reappointed every few years. Mm -hmm. And so I went the tenure track route. Now, once I got hired full-time at Roosevelt, you know, you can't be full-time somewhere and teach somewhere else because, you know, that that, because then Northwestern would be using my name to attract students to Northwestern. Right. So I went to Northwestern. I said, I have to leave. And they were, no problem. You know, they said, like, if you were full-time here, which I found out later, they would have had me do. I didn't even realize that. They said, yeah, you wouldn't be able to teach at the other place either. So then just kind of one thing just led to another. So again, you know, I have no idea how I got to all this stuff. I mean, it's, you know, it's just been really one lucky life. Are you teaching a lot of classes? Do you have a lot of private students? What does that look like? Kind of both. I mean, I don't have to go down there every day. That's one thing too, so which is really nice. But I have two ensembles. So um, this semester I'm teaching the avant-garde ensemble. So we're doing like stuff by Albert Ayler and all that, which is great. And it sounds great. And then you know, because I was head of jazz for five years, but then I just didn't want to do that. You know, the administrative stuff gets too like, uh, so I just wanted to teach. Um, I came up with like a whole genre specific combo program back when I was head of jazz. Rather, so rather than beginning jazz, you'd have, you know, an ECM combo and a hard bop combo and stuff. So I came up this year, they wanted me to teach the bebop or hard bop combo again. And I said, no, let's do a blues combo. So I'm doing. So yesterday, for instance, we did the blues combo and the avant-garde combo rehearsals. And the blues combo, you know, we're working on uh, Albert King stuff and T-Bone Walker stuff. And the kids love it. Because one thing, that those songs, you know, Stormy Monday or Born Out of, Under a Bad Sign, kids should learn all that stuff. Absolutely. Those, those are standards. And a lot of jazz programs, you know, it's only about bebop and big band. And our stuff is, no, it's much more open-ended to neo, neo soul and everything, it, it, as well as I teach the swing combo and all that stuff. So I do that. I've got a number of students. They're all good. One, one student from Indonesia who is a sophomore, he's ridiculous. And he absorbs everything. I feel like he's a mini me now. It's almost like, seriously, he, he's got incredible technique, but he does all the crazies. He'll just take something and he'll just run with it. And he knows so much about the music. So you get these certain students that even turn you on to certain things. And then I've got a couple classes. I've got an asynchronous class called, which I came up with called uh, The Power of Black American Music. And then I'm teaching um, a Jazz Essentials 1 class, which is a jazz history class. And then um, I'm teaching uh, Understanding Rhythm section. So, Oh, that's cool. Yeah. yeah. So in that one, you know, I'm teaching kids to understand what the rhythm sections do, but then expose them to to expose them to the famous, you know, Muscle Shoals and and the Wrecking Crew and you know the Stax people and Motown and they, you know because a lot of kids, you know, when I was growing up, when I was in college, jazz was fifty years old. Now it's a hundred years old. 
Motown was happening. Motown is 60 years, 50, 60 years old now. So kids, you can't expect them to know about everything. So when they can learn it in schools, they understand not only this music that either they knew or did know, but also, because our school is also a social justice-based school, I, I teach them the cultural correlations and how it's important in society and why this music even came into being. So, for instance, like with the, the blues music, I mean, blues was like the newspaper for for African-Americans for years. You know, back in, if you, if you go, there's a great podcast called Uncensored History of the Blues. It's all these blues things be, be, before World War II. And it, it, they're all topical. So it might be the Furniture Man blues where the, Guy comes and repossesses your furniture. And there's songs about that. Or lesbian blues or cocaine blues or the, the Mississippi flood of 1927 blues. And those that's how a lot of the stories got told to other, other people. And so in a lot of ways, music, including rock and roll, including jazz, in a lot of ways, and rap too, tells the story of what's happening in people's lives through music, where newspapers might not even care about that. So that that's the way I kind of approach it. So this keeps me down the rabbit hole. I mean, I'm always looking for new stuff and learning new stuff about stuff I, you know, knew about, but now I know more about it. Man, I bet that's an engaging class for your students. I'm sure they uh I'm sure they really eat that content up. Yeah. Last couple of minutes, I want to ask you about. I've taken a deep dive listening to this fairly new record of yours, the uh, uh, Drums Without Boundaries, mm-hmm. Paul Wertico's Drums Without Boundaries. I love it. I, it's just, a, I think it's a beautiful recording, and your playing is outstanding. I was just curious how that project happened. <laughs> okay, here's another story. <laughs> okay, well, I have four bands in Italy. So I have the Paul Wertico Trio with this great piano player, uh, Fabrizio Mocata, who I just talked to today because I think we're going to be playing in, in maybe New York and, and uh, Buenos Aires soon. And then great bass player, Gianmarco Scalia. Now, Gianmarco's in like the other band. So I've got a band with John Hellowell, a sax player from Supertramp. We have a quartet. And uh, make a real long story as short as I can. <laughs> What happened with Gianmarco is that a couple years ago, um, he did a record he wanted me to, to be on uh, called Dynamics and Meditation. And so we went and we recorded this in a day and a half. And it had a vibe player um, named uh, Mirko Pembrodi and, and a, good, a guitar player. So we recorded that. I helped put it together, too. So long story short, all of a sudden, Mirko, who's really great, he's a great improviser and classical uh, percussionist, he says, Paul, you know, there's this percussion ensemble, Ichos Percussion, I'd like you to do a record with with them. And and I say, sure, because I'm game for anything, right? So they put together this thing where I'm going to go, this was two years ago, I guess, in the summer, um, we're going to go record this album, Gianmarco's going to play on it, Mirko's going to play, and they got a different guitar player, this great guitar player, Alex Monk from... um, from England. So we book a three-week tour. Most of it is is my piano trio because we're playing one-nighters everywhere. So I land and the first two nights we do the piano trio thing in a couple different cities. Now next day Gianmarco drives me up to this 
small um, you know city where Icho's percussion has their warehouse. So I walk in and there's like this big warehouse with all his percussion. It's like this is great. Now one thing, it's like 105 degrees. This is like when the rivers are drying up and everything. So I walk in this warehouse. It's air conditions. Okay, okay, great. So we have like three days to do this record. Now we've never played together. <laughs> First of all, one of the five guys from Ichos isn't there because he's got COVID, so they've got a sub. Now, and the engineer, who's really good, speaks English really well, he's sick too, but he says he doesn't have COVID. So we set up, and we set up in the round. So I'm thinking, how are we going to do this then? Because we've never, we've never played this music before, and if someone makes a mistake, we have to, how are you going to punch in? Because it's going to bleed into everything. So anyway, I get my drum sound, first of all, and the drums sound great. I'm happy. And everyone gets their sound. And then we start playing the first tune, which is this mixed meter thing. And I'm hearing in my headphones, I hear my drums go, brr, 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 brr. and I'm like, oh my God, it's the latency. So all the mics, like the timpani's 60 feet away and the you know marimbas are 70... So I'd say, okay, we can't do this this way because the project is called El Chimia Project, meaning gold, and because uh, one of the tunes is called El Chimia, and, uh, and it's featuring me as a guest artist, right? So I say, this is what we're going to do. I go in my production mode because I, I love my producing records. I say, we're going we're gonna to play with click. We're going to stagger our stuff. You know, we're going to have... And so... We start playing and we do the first tune and everyone's really good. So every and everyone's really cooperative. So we get that first piece done. Now thing is we have to end by like dinner time because the engineer he has this thing where I guess he can only work eight hours a day. So we're done. We go out for dinner and then we go to the hotel. It's this great hotel. Get some rest. Now, the next morning, I wake up, but I wake up like 3 in the morning because my room's like 95 degrees. So my air conditioning's not working. And we have this 9 o'clock lobby call. So we go down, and we start working on another tune. Get it done. Great. Another tune. Okay, we're doing really well. They, they, they wanted to play one tune, but I didn't like it. I said, no, no, no. So anyway, we get up to like 30, maybe 35 minutes, 40 minutes, and they're like, Oh, no, no, the, the label won't release it unless it's 60 minutes. And I'm like, what? Cause, and we've got like maybe one day to, to, to do the rest of this stuff. Oh, dear. So I say, here, here's what we're going to do. I Luckily, I had my Mac with me, and I had my, you know, the iMusic, and I had waveforms of stuff off of my other records. So five of those things, you know, three of them were from uh, Stereo Nucleus, this one from... Wordico came Windows of Time and um and another one from Free the Opera, which was uh Fabrizio Makata and, and John Marco Scalia. And I said, put it in I I you know, put it in Pro Tools. I'm gonna tell you what to play and how and so I just conducted it. So all of a sudden we kind of get this done, right? And th this is great. So now we're kind of up to like, you know, almost 50 minutes. But we, again, we have to go out for dinner. So for we go out and the guy from Ichos gives me their their former C CD, which has some John Cage pieces, which, you know, I was familiar with John Cage, but not these pieces. So anyway, long story short, we go, and now we have like a half day to record because we have a concert that night. So I get up the next day. Now my room, they, are, they fixed air conditioning, but it's like 50 degrees. So I'm starting to get sick now. 
Okay. Oh, no, no. Uh, I've got I've got a sore throat, and I'm going. Uh oh. So we get to the studio, and I and I said, "Here's what we're going to do." I and without ever hearing it, I say, "I see third construction is like 11 minutes long. I'm going to play a brush solo up front, then just put it on. I have no music, nothing. I'm just going to play over it, which I did one take." No edits or anything. And that's how we got up to 60 minutes. No kidding. Well, that was funny. I was going to ask you about the the third construction track. I played that piece when I was in college. Mm. And, and I, I just, I loved your choices on it. And I was good asking you about the process of recording that piece, but it's really cool. So I just jam- jammed over it. So then the rest of the, t- well, actually that, that first night that we were going to play, we got rained out because we were supposed to play outside this beautiful castle and we got rained out. So the next day we have one more show. We have to play in Florence. So we stopped at a pharmacy and they gave me some throat lozenges and stuff. And they say, oh, by the way, don't test for COVID because you don't want <laughs> to know. I said, oh, great. <laughs> so anyway, we, we played the show in Florence. So it went great. And since we didn't have enough material, I, I actually gave the sound man for the whole rest of the tour the five pieces of mine and then we jammed over those live even with the piano trio which was really cool and let me let me tell you about, about the rest of this with the with the, the record so anyway i'm you know I, I think i'm done i haven't signed a contract or anything it's like i'm you know i just haven't doing what i do and all of a sudden you know the sound man starts sending me mixes of, of certain things for me to like go and like okay do this and do that and we're getting things are going good now all of a sudden i hear from the president of, of the label who is italian but the label's based in osaka japan he's going well we can't use uh, windows of time because he thinks it's electronic drums. And I said, no, 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 it's just prepared drum set. And he goes, okay, we can use it. But he was worried about the cage piece again. So I said, well, let me take care of this. So I, I go online and I look for, for the John Cage Trust and I contact them and I say, well, I, I played over this thing, you know, and, and they go, well, send us, send us a, a mix of it, which I did. And I get back from the publisher. He's, he, he loves it. He sends it to the head. They go, just use it. And and Ed Harrison, who's you know the guy I mentioned earlier, he he has played that many times too. He was blown away by by the by the whole thing. So anyway, to get back to the rest of this story on this, the the label guy says, okay, we can we can do this, but he hates the name Alchemia Project. I say, well, okay. So he sends like three other names, but they're like a combination of Latin and German. I mean, it's like you, and I said, no one's going to be able to pronounce this, let alone know what it means. He goes, okay, well, send me some other ideas. So I sent him like 30 other names, anything I could come up with. One of them was like drums without boundaries, drums without borders, Paul Wurtico's. So all of a sudden now it comes back and it's Paul Wurtico's drums without boundaries. I'm like, yeah, okay, since I did put this whole thing together anyway. And then he sends me the artwork. Now, there's three different covers that I had to choose from. And and this one was just the one. It was just, it's so beautiful. And then he sends me, uh, you know, he asks for any other information on who played on it and all this stuff. So I do all that work. And then he, he sends me the uh, the artwork with the graphics and everything. Now, the one problem is that John Molder, my guitar player, it had it left out the R. It said John Molda, 
So I said, okay, you have to fix this. Because on Ichos's previous record, they had two typos on there. They had uh, third construction, they left out the N, and first construction or something. So I said, you have to fix the R. Now, when, as long as you're doing it, please just, there was some space on the, on the, the, the uh, paper where it, I said, well, please just say Paul Wertico wants to thank all the great musicians and the John Cage Thrust for their support, right? So I get the thing back, the R is fixed. And then it says, Paul Wertico wants to, uh, you know, just wanted to thank everyone for. It's like, no, the sentence. So then I'm saying, man, where's the second sentence? He says, it's there. I said, no, it's not. You know. So finally he fixes it and then life is good. And then there's the release date, which was uh, the last, last date, like in July last year. And it came out and... It, it's gotten great reviews, but it hasn't been reviewed. Like, it was never reviewed in Modern Drummer. And plus, it's on the classical label. So, Da Vinci has a classics and a Da Vinci jazz. They didn't put it on the jazz label. They put it on the classical label. So, I never... And I think it's only gotten three reviews, which breaks my heart, because it's really one of the, my favorite things I've ever done. And I've had people like... Um, well, Glenn Kochi loved it. Um, Peter Martin the guys from Third Coast Percussion, all those guys were my students. They loved it. Uh, Mike Clark wrote to me, he goes, 10 stars. <laughs> Peter Magadini, before he died, he goes, Paul, it was, man, it's, but no one's heard this thing, really. It breaks my heart. Where with Matheny, you knew that as soon as that record's going to come out, at least 100, 200,000 people are going to be able to hear this thing. Yeah. So, like, your point about that, it sometimes it gets frustrating, but again, you know, hopefully it'll get out there, and if it doesn't, wasn't meant to happen. Well, I'm I'm going to find a way to get that in Modern Drummer. It's going to be my live submission for the for someone to write about it because it's a it's a wonderful wonderful release, man. It's so good. And it's not a funny story because most yes. people thought that we rehearsed and all this stuff. It was not. This was like flying by the side of your pants. I mean, if I hadn't done this, and even the guitar player really said, "Man." Great job, you know. You this wouldn't have happened without you. And it's not. I'm not trying to be an ego thing. It's just those guys were all willing to work together. They're all great musicians. They wanted to get the thing done too. And I just kind of went into that mode where we're all going to work together. Just please listen to my suggestions. And luckily, they were good suggestions for what the final product was. Yeah. You know. Well, I man, crazy. It's uh, you know, and I've listened to as many things with your name on as I have I've been able to and it's it's near the top of the list for me maybe at the top of the list I just love the approach to it and just the way the ensemble plays together and yeah what you what your choices on it were really really wonderful thank you thank you yeah absolutely yeah well, you know the idea too even Glenn Coach would say Paul you should be doing stuff with uh, you know percussion ensembles everywhere I mean I am playing with a a percussion thing now in april in texas at a high school they just called me but i would love to be going to japan and stuff and playing you know because the idea of improvising over even written pieces would be great because that that opens up the space because everything is even even a written piece is improvised except the person's improvising on paper and it turns into something that has to be played a certain way so I would love to do that because I love percussion, you know, and I and I love the adventure of of taking something and making it slightly different. So my brush solo was just an intro, but the way I played the brushes through was sort of this hot horizontal flowing thing that I I guess 
in retrospect, I was just trying to make everything flow horizontally where a lot of the percussion things were sort of vertical, you know, and angular. Yeah, and in and, and that piece, too, I mean, there are so many, many different rhythms happening vertically. And yeah, to, to, to find something that flows through that, it's, you know, it can be a challenge. Like I said, your choices were just, just so wonderful for that track. Thanks, bro. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Well, Paul... I just can't thank you enough for your time today. Um, this has been a this has been a real pleasure getting to hang out and, and speak with you and hear these great stories. Yeah, Brad. Hopefully, you get to hang out sometime. You know, if you're ever up in the area. Good luck. Thank you. Stay safe and yeah, keep keep grooving. <laughs> That's it. Thanks, Paul. All right. Thanks for listening to the Bandwitch Tapes. I'm your host, Brad Williams. The show's theme is called Playcation and was written by Mark Mundy. Drop me a line at the email address, thebandwitchtapes at gmail.com. Make sure to subscribe to receive new episodes of the podcast. And while you're at it, please tell someone else about the show. Thanks for listening. <laughs>